Well, good morning and welcome into MCC. How are you guys doing today? Good, 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 good. Great to be with you guys. For everybody joining us online, welcome into MCC. We are honored you to take some time out of your weekend to be here with us. If we had a chance to meet yet, my name is Trent and I am the lead pastor here at McDonough Christian Church. If it is your first time, fill out one of those things in the comments there or if you are here in person the first time, I'd love to meet you back there at that Connect area. It'll be fun. We'll get to hang out. Hey, at MCC, we believe uh, that more than just helping people learn things about Jesus, which is critical, we also want to be a church that helps people, like helps make their lives better. And one of the ways that we think Jesus does that for us is he sets us free. He sets us free from sin, but he also sets us free not just from stuff, but to stuff. He sets us free to live lives that have less financial stress. And so for us as a church, we want to help make that possible. And here's how we're doing that. Uh, we kind of kicked this off. We've been talking about this for a while now. There's this thing called Financial Peace University. And if you're ever, you know, you better find yourself in one of those categories where you're like, hey, uh, you know, we, we kind of struck, we're, we're kind of going a little bit paycheck to paycheck. Or, or you're at a place like, hey, uh, a retirement's coming up and I have no idea what to do with that. And, you know, t- you know, I, we woke up and got tax bill back and we owe $6,000 and we don't know what to do with that. Um, like FPU is for you. And again, there is no, I mean, zero shame because seriously, uh, if you scroll through the comments there online and you look across this room, the majority of us here, again, just stats, we ain't got it all figured out. All right. So no shame in this. We want to help. We want to set God's people free to be who God really has called us to be. And one of the things that holds us back from that is financial stress. So here's how MCC is going to meet you in the middle to help you through that. So I believe we can be generous people here in our city and make a, make a huge impact. All right. We have uh, started this FBU class. Now, what we've committed to do as a church is we're going to take um, the class costs $100. All right. We're going to say, hey, for anybody who wants to do it, we're going to cover half of that. All right, so we're going to go meet you in the middle, cover half of that. We're going to leave you with some skin in the game because when something's free, you know, how, how many things do we usually use that are, that are free besides the grace of Jesus? Not a whole lot. So we're going to meet you in the middle. If you want to be a part of it, though, I need you to sign up. All right, here's how you can do that. You can text FPU, or if you're watching online, this, um, FPU uh, to 770-450-1555. Text that, and that's how we, guys, we're going to do everything we can to help. All right. The online class is one that you can do on your own time. The in-person class, obviously, we're not going to revolve everything around you. Uh, the class will have a schedule and they'll meet and they'll go through it. Both of them will have the availability of a real life person who you can connect with, talk with and can walk you through all the questions because everybody's circumstance is unique. Here's the deal. We want to help. But like anything in life, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. All right. Now, some of you know you need this. You need to have a conversation. You need to text that or type that or whatever. You don't have to pay for anything today. Um, but yeah, we want to help. So let us and let Jesus use uh, this class to be something that changes your life and maybe your future for generations to come. Let's pray and dive into God's Word. Jesus, we love you. We, we thank you that we can come into a place like this and just be who you have us be in the moment. You don't ask us to pretend. You don't ask us to change a bunch of stuff. You, you just ask us to come. It's to meet around your Word to meet in a place where you're going to be preached and lifted up, God. And and Father, what I know is that when we come to your word, when we come to the truth about who you are, you are in it and you are through it. And so I don't know what brought everybody here today. And I know some people, they they would have rather not be here today. They'd rather be on a golf course or rather be fishing or rather be sitting at home in bed or, or anywhere else but here, God. But you have them here for a reason. You have them on this website for a reason. They stop scrolling for a reason. So I pray that they realize that that reason... Is way more than a reason. It's you. It's you, Jesus. I pray they have an encounter with you today. 
In your name, amen. All right, I want to start today with a big question. Big question. All right, you ready for it? We're in this series called More. Here's my big question. Maybe I should have started the series with this, but it's week four. Better late than never. What do you want more of? All right, big question. What do you want more of? And again, I know we're in church, so look, look, no Sunday school answers allowed here. I know like, we, you feel like God's going to lightning bolt me if I don't say more of Jesus. Um, I get that. But like, take Sunday out of the equation. Monday through Saturday, what did you want more of? All right? What did you want more of? What, what, what was that? Was it more time? More money? More sleep? Hallelujah. That's how I'm going to be today, this afternoon, after preaching my guts out twice and chasing children around and all that other fun stuff. What is it? What do you want more of? More affection? More tension? More free time? What is it that deep in your heart is more? See, here's what I want you to understand. Whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, whatever, where you're at in the spectrum. All of us have a desire, this thing that is inside of us that longs for more. It's why we go to work. It's why we seek a spouse. It's why we try to, you know, make our kids behave every now and then. It's why we do. There is a desire, a desire for more. But my thing is, what do you want more of? See, a lot of times, and you just saw the whiteboard out, so hallelujah, have fun today. Um, let's try to teach you this a little bit, okay? In regards to more, when it comes to it, and, and remember, more is a desire that doesn't start outside of us. More starts inside of us. You didn't have to see something great out there, whether it's a house, a car, or a spouse, or a beautiful, attractive human being. You didn't have to see that to know that you wanted some of that. So that desire is in there. So let's talk about kind of where we find ourselves on these spectrums. Most of us, when it comes to more, we'll just say this is kind of our triangular, I don't know why it's a triangle, we'll figure it out later. Um, we'll say we want more to spend. When we talk about what guides us, kind of the navigational beacon of our heart, a lot of us, I would say the majority of people, church people, non-church people, whoever, we want more to spend. Yesterday at my grandparents' house, and don't you love grandparents? They just love giving your kids money uh, that you then have to manage. Um, so my grandmother gives my, my youngest like $1.75. Now, most children are just born with this desire. Now, some of you have those weirdo kids who, like, they get money and they just want to save it and they invest it. And they want to, Mom, can you download me the Robinhood app so I can invest this in the stock market? Um, you've got those kids, which, awesome, go for it. But most of our kids, no one had to teach them. No one had to teach Ezra. He got $1.75 yesterday. And he said, I'm going to buy an excavator. Now, I don't know what cartoons he's been watching to know that, like, he's talking about getting a backhoe. I don't know if he's even talking about, like, a Tonka one or a John Deere one. I don't know what he's after here, but he got his money. And no one had to say, now, Ezra, what do you want to buy with that? Something in him went, I need to spend this. And your kids are probably the same way, and you're probably the same way. All right? Spend more. That's kind of a, a, a big desire. Now, some of us, we get older a little bit, and we want more to... Earn. Now, some of us, we're in this kind of like 20 to 30-year-old range, or we're bumping out of high school, or we're just starting to get our first job. And this driving, kind of navigational beacon of our heart is, I want to earn more. And a lot of times, let's be honest, we want to earn more so we can spend more. 
But also we want to earn more so that we can have those things. We want to climb that ladder. We want to get that job. It's like, whose butt at work do I need to kiss to be able to, to get a little bit further ahead? Because we want to earn more. And that can be a driving part of our life to figure out what do I, where do I need to move? Some of, some of us in this room, you moved to McDonough for a $10,000 raise from wherever it was that you were. You moved here for that much. And you'd move somewhere else for another $10,000. You'll change and do different things in your life to earn more. And a lot of people, I would say more, more, more often than not, most people are here, next people are here. After this, there are the people who when you ask what more do you want, they want more to save. Now, some of you are married to this person. Sometimes it's not fun. Don't laugh or look at them. Come on. Um, you grew up in this house. And they, they were, you know, they'd buy double ply toilet paper and they'd split it apart. And they'd put one in this room and one in that room. You knew those people who were penny pinchers. Now, the thing about this person is, is we may look at this and say that's more honorable or they're more virtuistic. Like they're, they're, it's, it's a wise thing to save money. And yes, it totally 100% is a wise thing to save money. But out of these three people, who's more probably apt to be generous and give to somebody in need? First two, right? Yeah. Like most of the time it's, it's going to be that person. They meet somebody. Okay, well, cool. I'll help you out. This person's more to save. Like, no, I'm, we're holding on to this. And we're going to live... You know, rice and beans, rice and beans, rice and beans. This is the person you met. And, and there, again, I think there are probably less people here. Fourth category, people who live with more to, more to give. And some of you have met this person. And like, man, heaven forbid, one of those cute kids come to the house with those like $5 chocolate bars because they're like, all right, I'll buy 20 and you're like, no, they're gross. Don't buy them. Don't bring the, you know, the, whether it's the cookie dough or the wrapping paper or whatever. Like this is the mark that that person is looking for. They are looking to give stuff away. This is that person who lives that, live with that desire. I want to give more. And that's kind of, especially in regards to finances, that's where they're at. I want to give more away. Now, again, we can go to this. And, you know, we all can kind of agree that there are less people in this boat here. Though it is more virtuistic, it is saying, man, I want to be the type of person. Again, Jesus gave, he gave his life. I want to be the type of person who the guiding part of my life is I want more to give. But friends, we know philanthropists, we live in the most justice-driven time in all of history. I mean, it's what millennials are all about causes. We want to give to things. We want to stand for things. In our world, there is no shortage of people trying to raise money and give to causes. Philanthropy is, is skyrocketing. People are trying to give stuff away, the things that they care about. And I'm not convinced that this is the best central navigational beacon for our heart, the guiding desire of our heart. I don't know if it's saying, what do I want more of? I want more to give. I think, and this is what we're going to talk about at length today, that there actually is a better place. Instead of asking, what do I want more of? Saying, more than, more than I want, more to spend, more to earn, more to save, or more to give. I want more of God. I want more of Him. And see, this is why I take it to a, a heart issue. Because 
you, in your own heart, you've got to understand what is the thing that you desire most of. See, a lot of us, we live our Christian lives with this question, this, this guiding question. Even if for those of us, and again, you're not a Christian, you're probably not asking this question. But even for those of us who are Christians, the guiding question for us is how can I get more from God? And a lot of times if we, we doubt or begin to mistrust God, it's because how could we go, well, how could a good God, who really is supposed to love me and care for me, not give me what I need? See, most of us live life asking, how can I get more from God? When the question I believe that we should be asking is not how can I get more from God, but how can I be getting more of God? A heart that desires more of Him. Now, when we have a heart that is that way, I want to I walk you through how we can actually begin to frame it with these things. Because these things, friends, these are external. These are not supposed to be the internal guiding, driving forces of our lives. So when we have a heart that says, I want more of God, then we can frame it out. And the foundation of that framework is how can I give more? That's the foundation of it, because that's the foundation of who our God is. From there, how can I earn more? Because when I earn more, I'll have more to give. And how can I save more? Because when I save more, I'll have more for tomorrow. See, this, guys, this is what our life is supposed to look like. Now, you may see this and go, well, bro... One of those things is kind of centrifugal to life that we're going to have to spend money to like put food on the table, you know, to, to pay bills, to keep lights on. Friend, that's not up there. It's not up there on purpose. And here's what I want you to see. Here, here's what I want you to understand and realize. So many people, and if, if you're a young person in the room, listen to me, man, if you can get this in your heart right now, it'll be a game changer for your future. You'll be more attractive. This is, everybody's wondering, how can I become more attractive? Figuring out this in your heart is one of the most absolutely attractive things that you can do. And here's what it is. If you can get your spending decisions, if you can get money out of your heart and realize that that should not be an internal driving, internal decision-making process and get that outside, it will change everything. If on the inside you can go, God is the more that I want. And because of that, I'm going to do everything I can to give more, to earn more, and to save more. Then what you have done, friend, is you have removed pay for out of your heart because you have finally realized that Jesus has paid for your heart. And that's the only way that you'll get it out. The only way you'll get, spend more out of your heart is if you fully realize and fully grasp this reality that Jesus has paid for your heart. And it's where he rules, it's where he reigns, and it's where he has set up all of who he is. So in regards to spending, it's out here. Now listen, the church has not done a good job telling people, helping people learn how to spend. Usually we go one or two ways. Usually we swing the pendulum all the way this way, and we go, you keep God at the center of your heart, and you sow $100 of seeds into this ministry, and God will pour out a blessing of 1000 He'll multiply that by 10 in your life, and one day you'll be driving a, a jet just like I am, and a car just like I am, and a suit just like I am, and you'll have all these things just like I am, and God will do all these things, and you just, you just want more of God, and then you'll be able to have more so that you can spend more. And people will be able to go, man, that's a king's kid by what they have on. 
or what they drive or where they go on vacation. But friends, that's the antithesis of the gospel, and nowhere is that a promise. So it's not a matter of spending more. Well, was it less then? And that's where the pendulum swings all the way this way. And you walk into a church. It's like, ooh, she had a Michael Kors purse, living for the things of this world. Hello, alert. You know? You know, they have a, they have a vacation house. Obviously, they're going to hell. I, you laugh. You laugh. There's one, in every, there's one on every corner in this county that is the same way. But again, the same way that, that, that get a jet like I got a jet is not the gospel. The same way live in poverty because Jesus was in poverty is not the gospel either. It's not that cut and dry. Jesus benefited from plenty, dozens of, of people in the gospels who were wealthy and well off. And never, only one time do we see, and then again, in an isolated instant, Jesus said, sell everything you have, then come follow me. And what he was trying to do, he was trying to, he, he said that to call the rich young rulers bluff. To other people who had money, he went in, he reaped the benefits, he, he got food, he got shelter, they cared for him, and he never told them, sell everything you have and live a life, make, take a vow of poverty, and then you can really actually be a faithful follower of me. So, in regards to spending, it's not more, it's not less, It's enough. See, it's not a question of, okay, if God's the center of my life, and I want more of Him, so because I want more of Him, I'm going to give more, earn more, and save more, and I'm going to spend enough. What, again, what in the world does that look like? And here's the deal, friends. This is a sad reality, a hard, not sad. It's a reality. That whole enough thing, whoo, we have a hard time with enough. I mean... Anybody overeat yesterday? I had like seven slices of pizza at my grandparents. We have a hard time with enough. We have enough time. We have enough with food. We have enough with sleep. We have enough with work. We have enough with almost everything. We have a problem knowing when enough is enough. And we have no problem finding enough on other people. We're like, oh, that's too much. They passed enough a long time ago. We have a hard time seeing enough in the mirror. So what I want to talk to you today is about figuring out how to win enough to be able to get to the place where we know how much is enough. Now, what I need you to get is in regards to enough and how we can know how much is enough, the determining factor in that is the battle between two emotions, two feelings. This is what they are. Content and covet. Those two emotions that will determine who wins the battle of enough is contentment or coveting. So content versus covet. This is where the battle between whether or not enough is enough is won and lost. So today I want to talk to you about these two things. Contentment and coveting. I want to start with coveting. Because I think that's where most of us find ourselves sometimes. In this place where we're coveting something. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to go to this book called Second Samuel. It's a book where God's giving us uh, an idea into the history of our, our, our people. 
2 Samuel is where we're at. I want to set up the story a little bit. Continue to hang out on the whiteboard, so forgive me if you can't see this. In 2 Samuel, we get the story of this guy named David. David, Christian, non-Christian, you've probably heard a little bit of the story of David. Now, David, I could give you a great theological definition for contentment, and you'd probably be like, yeah, I'm still kind of trying to figure out what that is. I could give you a great theological definition for coveting, and you'd be like, yeah, I don't really know. But this story I'm going to show you today in the life of what happens in this guy named David is the best object lesson illustration of what happens when we covet and what happened to him. So if you know anything about David, you know that around 11-ish to 13 years of age, David was anointed to become the king. So there was a king currently, his name was Saul, and he was doing a terrible job. And God comes and he says, hey, we need to get a new king in here. Go to the house of Jesse. Go to this guy named Jesse and let's go find a king at his house. Go see his sons. It's going to be one of those guys. And so the prophet goes to the house. He's going to look for these guys. And so he sees Jesse. He says, Jesse, bring your boys out. I want to see what you got. He brings them out and they're just some just beautiful men. I mean, beards, hair, just full heads, muscles, jack, rip, look like they'd be on a paper towel, you know, logo. I mean, those are just the guys. And the prophet sees all of these guys and goes, I'm not just, I'm not feeling any of these fellas. Like, I don't, I don't think it's any of these guys. And he asks Jesse, he says, do you have any more sons? And he says, yeah, I got one more. He's a runt of the litter. He's the youngest. And right now he's kind of out in the pasture working with some sheep. It's kind of out there. You sure? Like, trust me, these guys, like man dimes. You trust me. And he goes, no, bring him in. I'm not sitting down until he gets here. So he gets there. And then this David, this guy, who with a prophet of God in the room, treats his youngest son as if he doesn't exist. Youngest son David comes in, gets anointed as the next King. Now, that's a really big deal. I don't have time to go into all what it means to be anointed, but basically it means that God's hand is upon you and big things are getting ready to happen. This is the turning point of David's life. This is when God's hand fully is obvious to everybody else that it's on him. From here, we go to about 17 years old. A little bit of time passes. Around 17 years old, this guy David is supposed to be delivering snack packs to his brothers who are in King Saul's army. And he's heading out there. And he sees this Goliath giant dude. And he ultimately fights this Goliath giant dude. And a lot of people think this is kind of the turning point moment of David's life where like his, his, his life skyrockets and goes to the next level. But it's here. Again, David was not the underdog in the Goliath story. When you're, you know, you're watching a sport game, well, it's a David and Goliath story. At the end of the day, when you're anointed, you're never an underdog. David shows up to the battlefield, hits him in the head with a rock, cuts his head off, rides around town with it, and David has now burst on the scene. So David's on the scene at 17. From the ages of about, you know, kind of his, his 20s, what David's doing here is David is slaying things on the battlefield. Like armies after armies, he's expanding Saul's kingdom and things are going crazy. So much so that now Saul has become dangerously, deathly jealous of who David is. He wants to kill him. People are singing songs about how bad of a dude David is. The girls, he comes back into town and they open up their windows and they're like, David. <laughs> they're throwing clothes at him. They're singing songs about him. I mean, he is famous. That's him in his 20s. Around 30, 
David becomes officially, already talked about here, but officially takes the throne and becomes the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. All right? So he becomes the king of Judah here at 30. At 37, he becomes the king over the whole kingdom, north kingdom, south kingdom. He becomes the king over all of it at 37. And right here at 49, something happens. And from 49 on, what was this meteoric rise of this young man who started out as an 11-year-old anointed by God? Gets famous, gets way more famous, becomes king, becomes even more king. And at 49, something happens. And from here on out, what was a meteoric rise becomes a terrible, rocky road of destruction in his life. And what I want to talk to you about is what happens here. Because what happens here is David goes after getting more in a different way. What I want you to understand here is all of this, all of this happened, not because God was just kind of looking, he's up in heaven, just kind of looking down and be like, man, I need a good dude to just do some really good things. And I'm so sick of this giant. I just want to cut his head off and run through city. Let me just find somebody out there. Uh, that, that kid, yeah, bring him on. That's not what God did. See, David had already got the attention of the heart of God when he was out there in the fields. See, David, he got the attention of God, and I believe got the favor of God, then got the anointing of God, and then got the, the throne of God as far as what was on earth because his central driving force of his life was, I want more of God. You go back and read through the story. Go back in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Go, go back and see his story. You never see David going, God, I want more riches. God, I want to be on the battlefield crushing things. He is over and over again. Read through the book of Psalms. He is going, God, I want more of you, more of you, more of you, less of me, more of you. And I believe this is what puts him on the pace to rise as fast as he does. But at 49, I believe something in David's heart went from I want more of God to I want more of what I want. And that's our story. 2 Samuel 11 Starting in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, and again, David's a king by now, so this is the author's way of saying homeboy should have been on the battlefield. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So everybody goes out, David stays home. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. What's going on at 49? David wakes up. A cool morning, spring morning at 49, and chooses, I'm not going to work today. Which, maybe that's more of a big deal than we make it. What if God designed us to work? And what if, when we start looking for ways to get out of work, something in us breaks? And what if when we, as a, as a nation, or our city, or a group of people, when we are collectively looking for ways to get out of work, what if something breaks in our society? What if something is already broken? See, a person cannot thrive when they were trying to figure out how to get out of work. A student at school, you cannot thrive as a student trying to figure out how can I get out of classwork. A husband cannot thrive when he's trying to go, how can I get out of housework? I'm talking to myself. <laughs> and a people group, a nation, a country, whether it's Israel or the United States of America, cannot thrive when his people are going, how can we get out of work? And what we see here is David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And his entitlement and his ability to say, I have arrived, 
and I've got all that I need now. I'm the king on my high horse. He had settled, and he thought he had arrived. And we see in verse 2, it says, One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. What a coincidence. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Speed the story up a little bit. She became pregnant, told David about it. David tried to cover it up. He tried to cover it first without getting his hands dirty. Came to find out he had to get his hands dirty. He eventually had her husband killed on the battlefield. He wasn't there, but he made orders to allow him, Uriah, to go out to the front lines, pull everybody back so that nobody could protect him, and he died. Now in this gap between when this happens and David thinking that he has covered all of his tracks, we come to find out this reality about all of our lives, that what we think we have covered from people can never be covered from God. And he sees it. And God goes to a prophet, goes to a man of God, and reveals all of this to this prophet named Nathan. And tells Nathan what's going on in David, his king's life. And then he sends this prophet Nathan into David's room to be able to break this news to him and to put him on the seat, the hot seat. And this is what's said. It's the word of the Lord speaking through this prophet to David. Listen to what it says here. This is what 2 Samuel 12, 7b through 11. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. Pause right there. See what God is doing. God's not taking... Where does God start in, in putting him on the seat? Does he start at, you had sex with a woman who wasn't your wife? No. Where does God start? He goes right there. He says, I anointed you king. I, I, he's going, David... Don't you remember? Back here when, when, when I was all you wanted, back here when you spent nights feeling the rejection of your earthly father, you came to know me as your heavenly father. Back there when you were out in the fields and you knew you as an 11-year-old were too weak, too insufficient to fight off lions and bears as they tried to attack your father's flock. And you knew that he cared about those sheep more than he cared about you. And you cried out for me in those moments. And I met you there because you wanted me more than anything else because you knew that I was all that could supply and all that could save you from what you were experiencing. You remember why I chose you. And God takes it from there. Look where he goes. He walks through every point of David's trajectory and then tells him what's going to come. I know he's a king of Israel. I deliver you from the hand of Saul. I gave my master's house to you and my master's wives into your arms. I gave all of Israel and all of Judah to you. Now listen to this next sentence. It blows my, blow my mind when I read it. He says, And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Even more, guys. What if God doesn't have a problem with us having more? What if we do? See, I've been in churches and we've grown up in places where, where, where it's like anti-more. But I don't think God has a problem with more. I, I think we do. We have a big problem with more because we don't know how much enough is enough. And see, God 
is calling David for taking, some, taking more of what he had been deserving of. He'd given him everything he could ever needed. He allowed him to go from an anointed, lonely, scared kid out in a pasture to being the king over the largest nation at that time that the world had ever seen. And he said, David, why wasn't I enough for you? And I think, friends, that he may be asking you the very same question. Why am I not enough for you? Look around. Look at what I've given you. Look at what I've provided for you. Why isn't this enough? And maybe even, friend, you hear God saying the same thing to you. I, I'm still willing to give you more. Maybe that's something you need to hear today on behalf of God. He's still willing to give you more. But I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed. I'm going to go out on, on a, what I think is a fairly sturdy limb here and say that I don't believe that God is just looking for the people to give more to, the people who are saying, well, actually, what I want more of is more to spend or more to earn or more to give or more to save. I think the people who God is going, you know what, that's the person who I want to give more of myself to, those are the people who want more of me. Why would you want to give yourself to someone who wants none of you? That doesn't work in relationships with humans. It dang sure ain't going to work in a relationship with God. And so he comes to this place. And we see what's happening here. We see in his story coveting on display, wanting something that's not his. See, at the end of the day, coveting is this. Coveting is when a God-given desire inside of you gets corrupted and you satisfy that desire for something that's not from God and is not yours. See, desire. Desire is the doorway into satisfaction from God. What Satan loves to do, though, is he comes in and he says, I want to shortcut that desire. If you've got to open this door and get into the table with God to sit down and receive the meal, to receive the blessing from him, I'm going to try to give you an appetizer in the lobby. I'm going to try to give you an appetizer in the doorway. As soon as you get in, that is less than what you could get if you went all the way to God and did it his way and went to him all the way. And so what we see here, I want you to, to know this. What coveting makes you do? Coveting makes you stare at what you don't have. That's what coveting does. Coveting makes you stare at what you don't have. Now again, David didn't just go, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling, you know, I got, you know, whatever the present day, you know, example of flu was. And, and he didn't just go, I don't want to go out to war today. And he just, you know, went out on the patio up top, smoke a cigarette and go, oh, dang, look at that girl. Like, that's not how this story went. And you can tell it by what the servants say. You can't see it when you read the text, but scholar, most all scholars agree that what's happening here is not David pulling this like Hallmark, Hallmark Channel romantic comedy, just bumping into a beautiful stranger on the street. That's why when he sends someone to ask, who is that? They come back and they go, uh, it's Uriah's wife. You know, Uriah, who's one of your 37 mighty men, like, you've, you've met this lady. Like, when you read this, know that there's almost a level of sarcasm in this of going, David, you know who this is. This isn't an accident. See, what's happening here is David had already been staring too long. A lot of scholars agree that this isn't the first time he stumbled out on the back porch. David knew what he was doing. He had stared too long. See, when you stare too long at something that's not yours, that you don't have yet, what used to seem stupid now begins to seem smart when you stare at it too long. 
And look, we've all been there. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's an alarm question for you where something should be going off. What is that thing that you are currently staring at? That when you first began staring at it, you're like, that's stupid. But now you're looking at it and you're like, hmm. I wonder if it could work, though. I wonder if she'd find out. I wonder if he would know. I wonder how that thing would go. I wonder if we could afford that. I wonder if we could live in that neighborhood. I wonder if a beach house is possible. I, you know, used to. Maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago. And this is how discontentment works. It is a slow fade. Look, there are so many things in our lives that have been absolutely ruined because we are ungrateful about what they really are. Ungratitude. And it burns things down. Most of the time it burns them down really, really slow. So if coveting happens by staring at something too long, staring at something that we shouldn't have, and then from there it makes us do stupid things that seem seem smart, what I want you to understand is that when David blew up Uriah's family and Bathsheba's family and he had him killed, he was doing that to people he knew, people who were in his close circle of friends. And God punished him by making that circle go even closer to David even his own household. So if you want to kill coveting before it kills you, if you want to have more for tomorrow than you do today, I need you to pay attention to what you do have. Again, that's, what's a, okay, you know, you go out to coffee or somebody Monday and they ask, well, what did your pastor preach about? Or what was church about today? Here's it, it's simple. Pay attention to what you have. That's like, you want to know how to kill coveting. You want to avoid a rocky road in your life, young person. You want to avoid a, you know, more rocky roads in your life, older person. Pay attention to what you have. Like, very simple and practically speaking. If you are married, find some time this week to stare at your spouse for at least 10 seconds. And be careful what your face looks like when you're doing it. Like, don't give them like this. <laughs> like, not that stare, but like, the stare at them like it would be like your second and third date stare. I mean, fellas in the room, honestly, guys, like when was the last time you just stared at your wife for 10 seconds? And above her eye, like from here up. <laughs> when was the last time you just looked at, like, just, just look? And again, here's the deal, like, never mind. Um, <laughs> it's okay to look there too. I mean, she's yours. Like, that's okay. Like, you have a permission slip from me and from God. Look. She's yours. Look. He's yours, ladies. Flat button all. He's yours. <laughs> Look for 10 seconds. Thank Jesus and buy him some suspenders and move on. <laughs> and may, may, listen, if you're, if you're not married, that's, that's fine. You have, you have great friends in your life, though. Some of you, it's, if you're a young person, it, it's, it's pulling a picture out on your phone of you and your mom and your dad. Just taking a look at it for 10 seconds. And listen, I know there are some people in this room, the person that you want to stare at, all you got is a picture. Because they're in heaven. They're gone. Take the time. Take 10 seconds to stare at that and remember all the good that God allowed you to experience with them. And thank God for the good that you know is still coming. Maybe for you it's something like practical speaking, like it's a motorcycle. And you've been staring at one online, or you've been staring at a, you know, maybe ladies, I don't know, it's a pair of boots or something, or clothes or shoes, or I don't know what it is. Um, I could look on my wife's search history and probably figure it out, but I, I have not had the time to do that yet. I don't know what it is that you're staring at. But listen, if you want to not stare at something so long, 
that what used to seem stupid begins to seem smart, go back and stare at what you have. So some fellas, I mean, I talked to a guy after the service yesterday. He was like, man, I washed my truck yesterday. I detailed it out. I got in it. I drove it around. And I said, you know what? I don't want a new one anymore. Go wash the thing. Clean it up. Drive it around and go, you know what? I don't need another one. I'm content with what I have because I took some time to actually stare at something that I'm thankful that God provided for me. See, Paul was talking to this church in Philippi about contentment, and he said this. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Paul was saying, listen, I'm not talking to you about giving. I'm not talking to you about generosity because I, in particular, have some need. He says, I'm not telling you that because I have a need. He said, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances so he's saying, when I was a wealthy Pharisee, I, I understand that. When I went poor out on these streets and I'm you know, getting shipwrecked and doing these things and being kicked out of towns and whipped and beaten and flogged, I've learned how to be content with that, whatever the circumstances. It's not about how much money I have, what my standard of living is. I've learned to be content. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. And then one of the misquoted Bible verses of all time, you know, I don't blame Tim Tebow, but this verse has nothing to do with scoring touchdowns or, or, or getting interceptions or none of that type of stuff. This verse has everything to do with contentment. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So the next time you see that verse on some athlete's eye black, I want you to think less about them scoring touchdowns and more about you not taking out another loan to buy a vehicle. I want you to think about, I want to be more generous. I want you to think about, no, I don't need three more pairs of shoes. When you see that verse, it's going, no, because, and again, this is what he's writing to. He's saying, listen, let's apply to our real lives. Harder than it is to become an NFL quarterback and score touchdowns, it is, it is to say, no, I have enough. I have enough. I am actually content. I'm content. Now, contentment gets a bad rap. Because oftentimes when we hear content, we think, oh, well, that means I can just cross my arms and kick my feet up and go like, this is the house we live in. This is the food we eat. I work for minimum wage, and it's going to be that way forever. But that's not contentment in the Bible. See, contentment is being content with who I am as a person. Again, on that inside, in that inner triangle. I'm content with who I am as a person, but I am not complacent with what my purpose in this life is, to pour myself out so that the kingdom of heaven is expanded and more crowded because of the way I live my life. And that may mean I may give more. That may mean I may earn more. That may mean I serve more. Because while I am content with who I am in a person, as a person, I am not complacent with the calling that I know that God has placed on my life. Too many of us, man, if we do get to the place where we're content, it's lethargic. It's like, yeah, whatever. See, Paul learned the secret of being content without complacent, and I pray his church can too. Author Hebrews wrote us this, and we'll end with this verse. He said, keep your lives free from the love of money. I think you can flip that verse around very easily and say, if you want to live a free life, don't love money. Don't love it. The more you love it, the more it will bind you. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Again, there's that word. 
with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. See, even David, in the midst of his demise and downfall, there was a God who was there through it all. And some of David's best work, some of his best, some of my favorite psalms to read are the ones where God was with him in the midst of him blowing everything up and the turmoil that was going on in his family. God never left him. God never forsake him. And when we cross over the shores, we'll see David and we'll get to talk to him about these things maybe. Because here's the deal. No matter how far you've fallen, how much of a mess you've made it, God will not leave. He will not forsake you. He is there for you right now. And my prayer is that whatever you said at the beginning of this message is the more that you want. As we get into this moment now, as we get ready to close out, you would begin to say, God, I want you more. There is nothing else that I want more than you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that through what you did, through your death on the cross, your burial, and your resurrection, we cannot just say we want more of God, but we can get more of God because now you have made a way for us to receive that through your blood shed on the cross. I pray as your people sing today, they sing with pure hearts. That long, God, for more than the things of this world, the one who created this world, who knit it and us together, and holds us together even now. In your name, Jesus. Amen.